Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, just a note that this episode mentions suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out. You have a few options. One is you can text HELLO to 741-741. That will get you to the crisis text line. For LGBTQ youth, you can text START to 678-678. That will connect you with the Trevor Project. This episode also gets into a few topics that we don't often talk about on Grief Out Loud. Things like physical intimacy and substance use and harm reduction. Okay, here we go. So on this show, I don't often read the formal bios of guests because what we talk about here is so much more than a list of workplaces and publications or letters after a name. Those things are super important and they deserve to be recognized. And on Grief Out Loud, we tend to delve more into narratives intertwined with emotions and physical experiences and the topography of our minds. But Today's guest sent me a bio that gets to all of that. Here's an excerpt. Adam Stevens, who uses he-they pronouns, is a registered drama therapist who works at the Hetrick Martin Institute, a nonprofit organization that serves LGBTQAI plus youth in New York City. Their role includes supporting queer youth and transforming their loss and grief into unapologetic, abundant joy and empowerment. Previously, Adam worked at the Cook School and Institute, guiding young people with developmental and intellectual differences. Adam's superpowers are rooted in the fantastical forces of creativity and love. See, not your average bullet list bio. And it's fitting because Adam is someone whose work spans many realms. They started engaging professionally with the grief realm back in 2020, when the COVID pandemic came to New York. He watched as the youth he worked with as a school counselor were suddenly surrounded by loss. Adam realized that conversations about grief needed to happen, and he was willing to have them. In February of 2022, Adam started working with the Hetrick Martin Institute, which you'll hear us refer to as HMI. In that role, he works primarily with BIPOC, queer, and trans youth, utilizing creative arts therapy as a modality to explore grief and find ways to honor individual and communal losses. Adam comes to this work with those superpowers of creativity and love, and also with a deep knowing of grief. Adam grew up in a family of five. As of this year, it is now a family of one. Over the past nine years, Adam has navigated the death of his mother, his two brothers, and most recently, his father. Usually at this point, I give you a little summary of what you're about to hear. But in this conversation, Adam and I talk about so much, I think it's better to just get going. Adam, thank you so much for joining me on Grief Out Loud. I love that we were able to connect just through a random Instagram post. So I'm happy. Here we are talking. (laughs) 
Hi, Jana. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to the wonderful conversation that uh, we will have today. Um, also, if I may, I, I want to locate myself. That feels important. Your, our listeners can't see me, so it feels important for accessibility purposes just to say, this is me. Is that okay? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay, so, hey, y'all. My name's Adam. Pronouns are he, they. You can't see me, but I am a beautiful, wonderful Black person. I live in a fat body. I'm not a tall person. I'm a short person, and I love all of my five feet, five and a half inches. I'm a person who shows up with visible disabilities from the glasses I wear and also invisible disabilities, which speaks to my mental health. My hair is beautifully long and braided and blonde, gorgeous braids. And I have a little bit of facial hair. And I think that's enough just to give you a sense of of who's speaking to you. So, Adam, you know, we all come to this work and by this work, I mean, working with grief and loss and bereavement, we get here in different ways. And I'm just curious if you could say a little bit about what drew you to this field. That is a great question. And when I think about, when I think about what drew me to the field of grief, bereavement, loss, I really focus in on the last two to three years um, in terms of what that looks like. And that's really connected to my professional lens as a clinician working in Manhattan, New York, guiding youth of intersectional identity locations, right? The past three years, we've been through a lot as a country. We've been through a lot as a world, haven't we? COVID-19 arrived and it just devastated the world. And there was this insane and tremendous loss all around us. And where I live, more specifically, I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, At one point in time, it was the highest death rate uh, in the world, right? So I really saw death all around me. Um, And in my day job, I work as a school counselor, a clinician, uh, supporting youth with neurodivergent needs. And we were told we couldn't go to school anymore. We were told that we could not leave our homes. And so the work that I do is very embodied. It's very connecting. And suddenly I'm told to stay home. So how do we we connect? And then we're dealing with this fantastical sense of loss and grief. And I felt it was important to acknowledge it head on, to embrace it, to talk about it. And so with the coming of virtual telehealth, we had these really big conversations around the loss that exists in our lives and what it reminded us of. And it was a great opportunity for the youth to connect to loss that they've experienced in their lives, be it a grandparent or a pet, a parent, a sibling, connected to what was happening in the moment, right? And then we saw a lot of murder, a lot of harm happening on the news, a lot of murder and a lot of harm happening to people who are different. I'm speaking to Black people more specifically. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement came into prominence. It became very media heavy on all of the outlets. We were over, I believe that we were oversaturated with police brutality and the loss of black lives. And that's why, you know, we came into as a country collectively owning that black lives do indeed matter. And a lot of the young people that I work with were really upset by that. Upset because they identified and connected to, you know, I see myself in that and some of the things that they would share 
was that they were afraid to leave their homes, not just because of COVID, but because in their bodies, like, you know, they were fearful that harm may come onto them because of the color of their skin. So when we speak to loss and we speak to grief, we're speaking to a lot of death that was existing at the time and loss of life in that we're not able to go out and live the lives that we were meant to live. Our lives are changed and we're feeling suffocated and our grief kind of stems from there. And, you know, you asked me very clearly, what drew me, Adam Stevens, to this work? I found that a lot of my contemporaries, a lot of my colleagues didn't want to have these big conversations with our youth. They were afraid to. I believed it was ever important. It was a great way to connect and say, hey, guess what? You're going through this. I'm also going through it, you know, going through it too. Mr. Stevens is feeling some kind of way about it. Mr. Fe- Mr. Stevens is scared. And that was real. You know, we're still existing in the times of racial reckoning. We know that it's always been, but it continues to this day. COVID-19 is not over. The numbers, they go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. But what continues to go up and up and up is, you know, the death rate of COVID-19 and the impact that it's had globally, right? The impact that it's had globally. So we get to continue these conversations, right? We get to continue this work of diving headfirst into grief. How do we individually and collectively navigate our way through our grief stories, through our loss stories, through our stories of bereavement, so that we can come out on the other side, able to embrace new normals, um, able to embrace joy, um, and also the sadness that comes with it too. We're not erasing it. Um, We embrace it all, but we have the tools to do so, right? We have the tools to do so. Well, Adam, you'd mentioned that your colleagues who also are working with these youth were like, ooh, that that topic is too scary. Like, I am not ready to have those big conversations about loss on so many levels with these youth. And then there you were. You were like, I can have these conversations. And I wonder if there's a way that your personal experiences with grief have contributed to your capacity to be there with youth to talk about death, to talk about grief, to talk about loss. Jenna, that's a great question. You've asked me to consider my own experience as it relates to the work that I do. Uh, And this is controversial in the field of counseling and psychology, creative art therapy, because, uh, you know, there's two sides, two beliefs that on one side, you know, we as clinicians, we as adults don't share of our own personal experience, that that's not okay. I like to live on the other side where, you know, in service of my youth members, in service of the people I'm working with um, and for in function of, I will self-disclose bits and pieces of, of my life to support them, to help them. And in doing so, it humanizes our experience. It doesn't make me the therapist, but rather it makes me another human being in space, just trying to make it through. I'm someone who had COVID early on and was very scared about my life. You know, I, I almost didn't make it in 2020. And that was really scary uh, to be home alone and to be lying in bed and to be wondering, am I going to be okay to call a hospital to see if I'll be able to get in? And they say, we don't have any vacancies and you don't qualify. If it gets worse, come in. But right now there's really nowhere for you to go. Really scary to not only see police brutality of Black people, of Black bodies, but to my, me, myself, experience and see it. As we continued on, you know, in the past few years, 
I'm just getting a little bit more personal here. You know, I lost my oldest brother to pancreatic cancer in 2019. I lost my second oldest brother to COVID, the holiday season, 2021. And I most recently lost my father just a month ago to pancreatic and liver cancer. I lost my mom nine years ago this summer. We were a family of five, Jana. We were a family of five. And now we're down to a family of one, just me. Um, how does that inform my work? I don't know everything and I'll never claim to know everything, but I do know loss. And I do have empathy for those I work with. And I speak from a place of knowing, a place that's heartful, um, hurtful, a place that's filled with love, understanding. And it's hard because I feel myself right now just getting emotional, just thinking about it. And this is not expected. But when we talk about it in this way, emotions are real and they're okay. And to be able to express them speaks to a sense of liberation and a sense of freedom that I'm able to indulge with and engage with with you and people who are listening to this. And I hope that it inspires people to be emotional. Let it out. And when we let it out, it speaks to freedom. And that speaks to the work we do as grief counselors, right? Um, as bereavement counselors, wanting folks to have liberation from the intense hurt, from the intense pain, from the intense suffering. Does it go away? No, but we get to walk side by side uh, with this pain, a bit freer, a bit lighter. And that's a big part of the work. That's a big part of the work for me. I'm not judging my colleagues who didn't want to go there because I believe that folks have their reasons for not going there. I'm going to speak from the eye. I'm going to speak for myself and say that I go there because I don't see any other way. I go there, Jana, because I feel it's responsible as a human being and responsible, speaks to responsible practice as a clinician, as an artist. I'm um, not only a clinician, I'm also a theater maker. And for me, the two kind of go hand in hand in my identity as a drama therapist. And I bet you're wondering, hey, what's drama therapy? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get there in a moment. And and Adam, it just struck me that, you know, you said that you go there or felt like you could go there with youth because it was needed. And also, I was thinking, like, you're already there. There's nowhere to go. Carrying your own personal grief of living in New York during the time of the pandemic, the early stages of the pandemic, like, you're already there and the youth are already there too. It's just someone being able to say, let's talk about where we already are. We don't even need to go anywhere. And I think that's a big part of that liberation piece of not only liberation from the intense pain and the suffering by the sharing of it, but a liberation from the isolation that occurs so often when we are grieving, because we feel like we are the only one doing this when we're all doing it on some level. Um, so just appreciating like one, your willingness to share with me and, and to our listeners um, about your personal story and the acknowledgement of you could go there because you are there and there's so much power in that. Thank you for acknowledging that. Thank you for saying so. I hear you and I'm just through the screen. I'm, I'm receiving all of that energy, all of that. Just, I feel seen. 
I feel seen and I feel heard and I appreciate that. And that feels really important to say because I think that in this work that we do, it's about allowing spaces for people to take up space when they feel for whatever the reason, they cannot take up space. It's about offering spaces for people to feel seen and for people to feel heard. That's really, really important. And in doing that, this beautiful thing happens when we step out and step in, we are seen and we are heard. And then our stories connect with another. And then you spoke to this piece about isolation. If your story mirrors mine or we have some similarity, I'm not alone anymore. We're together in this collective grief. Is our grief exactly the same? No, no, not at all. But I see you in me and that's comforting. And I really need to be comforted right now. I really need to be comforted. And you just being here with me makes me feel comforted. Speaks to group process, right? And being in community, being in relationship with another. And, you know, in the work that we do, the work that I do, a lot of times our youth feel desperately alone. They're scared. You know, I work at Hetrick Martin Institute in Manhattan, New York. And there we serve LGBTQAI plus youth. We serve queer youth. And I'll even go further to say that 95% of our youth are black indigenous people of color, right? So we're really serving queer trans uh, persons of color. And we know that that's a very specific kind of grief. It's not the same grief that exists, you know, for someone who lives in a white uh, body, someone who lives in a cisgendered body, right? Uh, this grief is a disenfranchised grief because it speaks to loss and isolation and, and death through the lens of difference through the lens of my queer identity, through the lens of my black identity. So being able once again to be in spaces where we get to do work that speaks to that specific intersectionality. Uh, and it's not just that it expands, you know, there's there's neurodivergence and 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 size and 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 ethnicity, culture, all the things, you know, it's it's not just one thing this we know, it's the whole, the whole pie, as I like to say, with many different ingredients. Let's go a little into that work. And, you know, you alluded earlier that there may be many people listening who are like, what is drama therapy? That's not, you know, a, um, a medium of intervention that I've heard about before. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about drama therapy, creative arts therapy, and then lead us a bit into like how you got connected with Hedrick Martin Institute and, and what that work has started to look like with those youth. The elevator pitch I often share with folks when they ask me, what is drama therapy? Um, I'll say, you know, it's art, theater, drama, improvisation, theater games on one side, right? And then on the other side, it's counseling, psychology. You put them together, drama therapy. More clinical definition can include, you know, using theater and embodied approaches to allow folks to arrive at a sense of feeling growth, self-expression, and catharsis. You know, in drama therapy, we use uh, role play and improvisation in drama therapy. There are projective techniques where we're using puppetry and masks work in order, again, to help people grow. 
And why is that important, right? You know, drama therapy falls under the umbrella of the greater creative arts therapies. And that includes drama therapy, art therapy, music therapy, dance movement therapy, and poetry therapy, right? And what draws me to this work is, you know, not everyone's going to be able to verbalize their feelings and emotions. Um, actually, I would say that a lot of people have a difficult time doing that. It's very scary, to be honest, right? It's very scary. But through a creative outlet, we get to experience it in a different way, a holistic way and a clinical way that allows folks to speak using different means, different mediums. And in doing so, they find their voice oftentimes. And that's really cool, really important work. And that's what draws me to drama therapy. And, you know, when I went to undergrad, I majored in uh, theater, acting, directing. And also I had a minor in psychology. So when I heard about this thing called drama therapy, it was being able to marry my two passions for the arts and also taking care of the other. So I went to school, got my master's degree in drama therapy and have been doing this work for a number of years. And I have arrived here working specifically uh, at HMI where I started just this year in February of 2022. And my official title is a uh, program manager for bereavement and mental health services, which Janet, it brings up so many things, you know, my work leading up to this point has brought me to this position. Um, I work with loss, my sense of fearlessness, and also openness around, let's dive in. Like, how can we not, you know, engage with these narratives, these stories that are performing and existing in the world from everybody. And then also HMI saw a need for it too. They were like, we're dealing with a group of magnificent young people who need a space, an outlet to explore grief. And why not do it in a creative way, right? Why not do it in a creative way? Which is what I love about my job that I get to have agency and flexibility to be able to create programming that is going to allow um, the youth at HMI, these beautiful queer adolescents and young adults to be able to be in community around, again, these, these grief stories, these, these bereavement narratives. You know, we're engaged right now with um, what we call the Puppet Pandemic Project, uh, recognizing that a lot of folks haven't had a chance to be together to talk about, whoa, this big thing happened and what's going on? We've talked around it. We see what's in the news and the media. A lot of folks have been, no, not everyone, not a lot, everyone has been impacted by it. So, you know, in this group, it offers a creative space, an artful space, a careful space and a loving space for several of our youth members to come together weekly to not just talk about their stories, but to act them out. And in doing so, they get to take back and reclaim that power for themselves. So they're no longer victims, um, but rather they're agents of change, you know, getting to arrive at a destination of hope. Uh, of healing and having that validated back because the culmination of this is going to be a production with the work that we've, the stories and the work that we've created, the puppets that we've made, uh, where they get to share it with folks that they choose to invite to witness this work. And that's really, really, really important. Recently, I had um, a parent email me just to say thank you. They're like, we haven't had these conversations at home. We don't know how to have these conversations at home. But then when our young person comes home really excited about, you know, 
leaving the house, which for a lot of people nowadays is really difficult, but leaving the house and then coming home super excited about talking about grief, about talking about the loss uh, during COVID-19. I mean, it's like, wow, wow. Adam, I know that, you know, when I think about I don't know what the right word is. It's not really common. It's not really a stereotype, but the more well-known, I guess I'll say well-known losses associated with the pandemic, which would be the death of someone, someone becoming ill and having long-term effects of it, uh, cut off from being an in-person school, cut off from social connections. Are there losses that these youth are uncovering and unveiling that have caught you off guard or have surprised you in some way, ones that maybe aren't as common to us? So I'm smiling right now. So everyone who's listening, Adam Stevens is smiling. (laughs) Why is Adam (laughs) Stevens smiling? Because I'm thinking about your question. I'm thinking about some of the things that come up in process, uh, in group process. And I'm not warning you, but I'm just saying we're about to go there. So get ready. Sex. Sex is something that has surprised me. It's surprising and not surprising. I mean, sex is something we all think about, but the loss of human contact, human connection, of touch. You know, adolescents, this is the time when they're experimenting and finding about their bodies and what we like, what we don't like. And, you know, they're, quote, hooking up, you know, behind their parents' backs and so on and so forth. Um, And they were robbed of that, right? They were robbed of that. And we, as a world, were encouraged to stay home. I'm also thinking about, Jana, those who did go out and who did engage with that desire, that want. And I'm not judging the act of wanting sex. I'm not judging the act of sex. But there are consequences to those actions, right? Um, Some of the things that we've heard are, you know, I did this and as a result, I contracted this. Um, And because I contacted this, it impacted or affected another. And sometimes that equates to death. Sometimes that equates to death, which is such a part of our stories these days, isn't it? And when folks have space to talk about, I mean, (laughs) again, talk about, you know, what desire look like, what social media and media platforms they were looking at on their phones. I'm speaking more significantly, specifically, excuse me, speaking more specifically uh, to pornography. Uh, It comes in the space and it's like, oh, but then it's like, wait, we could talk about that here? And it's like, Mr. Adam, of course, is like, well, raise your hands if you did not think about sex the entire pandemic. You look around, no one's raising it. Raise your hands if you did. And slowly but surely, everyone's hands start to kind of, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then it's like, okay which is great because here we are in a group about loss and death and bereavement and grief. And then we're exploring it and entering in through a lens of sex positivity, right? We're not shaming the act of sex, but rather we're humanizing and saying it's okay. But also there's um, an invitation to responsibility and an understanding that our actions have consequences, right? Uh, On either side, right? Good and bad and everything in between. And I often, I hate, I just said good and bad and I hate that language because I try not to exist in that binary of right or wrong or good or bad, but just acknowledging that there's a spectrum, right? And helping folks to locate themselves within that spectrum at all times. 
Adam, this is a question that's coming a little bit out of nowhere, so we can skip it if it doesn't seem relevant. But I'm wondering with you know, the youth that you're working with at HMI at Hetrick Martin Institute and, and the losses that they have incurred and continue to incur. And then there's also this sense of like, pandemic's over, moving on. There's a lot of phrasing I'm seeing like post pandemic. I'm like, post what? Like, as far as I can tell, it's still happening. And so I wonder what it's like to be in a space with youth and how they're navigating maybe this sense that it's over now, we need to move on, get over it. And yet those losses are still real and valid and completely connected to what has happened and what continues to happen. So did that question make any sense at all? It did. It did. And, you know, it's, it's massive in scope and also it's necessary, isn't it? Um, This phenomena that we're existing and living in a post pandemic world, whilst we all know we're very much still in the pandemic, is really important. And I think I'll start here. I'll start on the more superficial external and then we'll kind of go more internal. Um, but masks, right? Uh, you know, once upon a time, you didn't leave home without your mask. Like you just, it was a thing. And now what's happening is, you know, a lot more folks are feeling more comfortable to not be masked. And I see it in the youth. They're not wearing their masks, which speaks to a sense of many things, right? Being over it, like I'm over wearing masks, I'm over the pandemic, feeling a bit more brave. The pandemic's not going to beat me and wanting to be seen, right? You know, for over two and a half years, we have been hiding behind masks or hiding from the distance of a screen. Um, And now we're in person and we get to be seen. And that is a visceral experience that's really important for our youth our youth are talking about what's going on. And we do a lot of psychoeducation and a lot of health groups that speak to um, harm reduction and better health practices for the individual and also for the community, those that we engage with. We're not just dealing with the pandemic here, we're dealing with monkeypox uh, is on the rise in Manhattan and across the country, but you know, in Manhattan, you know, we are faced with STDs, and there's so much, so it's, we're speaking to better health practices, right? It's really nice over these past few months to see people coming out of their homes. You know, HMI was virtual uh, for, uh, for a while there, right? And, you know, we then leaned into a hybrid situation, you know, meaning that, you know, um, some of our programming was remote online and other programming was in person. Um, And now what's happening is we're really starting to see our youth members come back to the space and embrace the space. And what is amazing about that, Jenna, is this space is a home away from home. It's a space where our youth get to be their unapologetic, authentic, gorgeous, beautiful selves. That was lost for many of them over the pandemic. So being able to re-enter speaks to vitality. It speaks to life, you know. You can hold hands with who you want to hold hands with. You can dress in a way that feels like this is me um, without fear of, you know, the outside world or your family uh, commenting or leaning in. And that speaks to the disenfranchised loss, uh, the disenfranchised grief of, of queer youth. The loss that's not necessarily related to death or connected to death but has a similar impact, right? 
And we know that this loss can lead to depression, anxiety, um, suicide. There's been an increase in substance use, right? And again, we always approach this from a, a space of harm reduction, but you know, we're thinking about the interconnectedness of all that I'm speaking to, vitality, and then the absence of vitality, right? The disenfranchised grief as queer youth, as youth of color, as queer youth of color, being able to be outside in spaces again. As I'm talking about this, I'm getting a little bit overwhelmed myself. I'm like, wow, that's a lot to take in. And also what I'm doing is I'm describing the experience of not just youth members, but also adults too. Because I also went through that experience of like, oh, like I have to like put on pants and a proper outfit to go to work. <laughs> it's a thing. And then when I'm with you, it's like, oh, wow. Like we can't have this same dance party or Kiki. Like you can't do this over Zoom. Nope. Um, mm. But in person we can. Um, and the energy is real and it's pulsating. It's exciting. And it's joyous, it's liberating, it's free, it's loving, and it saves lives, right? It really saves lives. It provides homes, right? It allows folks to connect with their chosen family, their family at HMI, which I wish when I was younger, you know, I'm thinking back to a younger version of myself. I didn't have HMI. And I'm thinking about what if I did? You know what I mean? What if I did? Some of those dark thoughts that, you know, kind of creeped in, maybe they would be there, maybe not. But that level of support, that level of love would have helped guide me through. And Adam, you mentioned, you know, there's the losses of having someone in your life die. And then there's all these other non-death losses, to use a more technical term, that are really unique and specific to queer and trans youth and queer and trans youth of color. My next level question around that is what is your sense, either from your own personal experience or from some of the youth that you have worked with over the years, of how being queer and trans or queer and trans youth of color, like that part of their identity, how does that interface with when a death does occur? Like how does it impact opportunities to grieve, express grief over the death of someone related to those parts of their identity? Jana, it's multifaceted. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, someone dies in our family, our birth family, right? And we're expected to go to the ceremonies and the rituals, and we're expected to show up in a very specific way. You know, don't be too much of yourself. Don't wear that. Essentially, don't be too gay. Uh, because, you know, we don't want to bring shame onto the family. So not only are we navigating the loss of a loved one, but we're dealing with a sense of erasure, a sense of stifling our own sense of self, right? Our own, um, our own identities. And then I'm thinking about the other side. It's like, you know, when someone from our community, our queer community dies and passes on, you know, we hold a rich history that has brought us here and we get to love on them for who they really are. We get to encourage, you know, a sense of resting in power, celebration of difference and celebration of the uniqueness, wild creativity, 
mind-blowing energy in a way that does not happen in other spaces, right? In a way that does not happen in other spaces. Because we're engaged in collect a sense of collective healing based upon our shared experiences of being queer, based upon a rich, rich, rich history that stems from the civil rights movement, right? Where we fought for rights for folks of color that then led to the Stonewall riots in Manhattan, New York in 1969. That history, her story, our stories exist within our bones and our bodies. So when that loss happens, it's an experience that's greater than ourselves. It's our collective grief and we get to own it and no one, no one can take that away from us because it's ours. It's ours. I really appreciate you asking that question. Well, thank you for engaging with it. And, you know, as we're, as we're talking, uh, you know, listeners, I can see Adam, you cannot, but you can probably hear it in, in his voice, but you spoke to vitality. And as you, as you talk about this work with, with all youth, but particularly this newer work with the youth at HMI, like, it seems like it brings you a sense of vitality as well. You kind of like light up around it. And I, I'm curious if you've noticed how this work has shifted or shaped your own personal grief or your relationship to your personal grief. Hmm. How has my work to HMI helped shape my relationship to my personal grief? I'm a little bit, how do I say? I am feeling stunted a bit. And the reason I'm feeling stunted is because we're going to a personal place. And that's okay. That's okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a breath and then I'm going to answer the question because it's, yeah. It has allowed me to be more real and honest about my grief process. It has allowed me in my personal experience of my own grief to see the realities of what it means to be the queer one in my family and how that's impacted my ability to grieve, how that's impacted my the dynamics that are inherent in my family and that have been there for years and years and years, how it brings up my internalized homophobia and the homophobia um, um, of my family members and recognizing that's really important because I get to um, I get to claim what's my stuff and I get to release or, or dump what's not mine. And for a long time, I held on to all of it. Like, this is my fault. I did this and I did this. And it was just like, wait a second, now working through this work, you know, and being in my own process, you know, I'm not afraid to say I have my own therapist and I see them weekly. You know, I'm also in supervision as a clinician, which has helped me to hold and let go of what I need to hold and what I need to let go of. Helps me to support my youth um, in a more full way because I'm more present and available for them. I really believe I've become more present and available to myself because I'm doing the work outside of my professional identity, outside of my work with the youth. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that the youth inspire me to go just a bit further, you know, to be a little bit more transparent and own own my experience which you know we spoke to liberation has been liberating right uh being able to let go is really liberating and i'm thinking about the opportunities and the things that it's created in my own life 
and I'm I'm really grateful. I'm really, really grateful. You know, my partnerships, my friendships, my marriage to a very beautiful man, the hope for family, my own family, growing family in the future. Um, these are all things that have come up because I've let go of the trash through doing this work. And then when I'm in group process with my youth, it's like, hey, uh, Sonia Renee Taylor often speaks to the idea of dumping the junk. It's like, hey, y'all, let's dump the junk. Let's let it go. And we do that. I'm like, so now you've dumped the junk and sometimes we, we get playful with it. You know, like we're literally having these, these moments of dumping and you can just, listeners, I'll leave you to imagine what that looks like, but it's super fun. <laughs> um, um, just the, the openness and availability that it creates is really, really important. And that speaks to a sense of modeling, modeling some of these efforts that we are part of, that we engage with, that we do on the day-to-day as part of the work. Well, Adam, you mentioned early on, I think it was maybe just in the first few minutes of our conversation, this idea of carrying grief and having space also for joy and having space for engaging with life and having space for finding gratitude and not dismissing the grief that we carry. And it feels like in just in our conversation today that you are absolutely modeling that to the youth through your own process. So I really am sitting in a place of appreciation for your willingness to be transparent with me and transparent with our listeners and for, you know, the work you're doing with the youth at HMI. And as we come to the end of our conversation, is there anything else that you would want listeners to know about the work you're doing or how they may get connected or learn more or just any last piece that you're like, but wait, I really want people to know this. I think HMI is an amazing organization. This is the part where we're going to put a plug in. Get ready for the plug. Uh, but you can find us. Right? <laughs> uh, thank you. You can find us at HMI.org. Uh, we are on Instagram at, uh, at Hetrick Martin or at HMI Youth. Uh, look us up. Um, and there are very many ways to get involved. There are very many ways to get involved. Uh, we are based primarily out of New York. But there are other organizations that serve queer youth all across the country. So feel free to reach out to us or do some research, go on the www.google.com and, and, and find um, a resource, a center near you. Really important. Well, Adam, thank you for letting listeners know where to find more about the work you're doing at Hedrick Martin and more about Hedrick Martin and also that they are in support of other agencies and organizations who are working with queer and trans youth around the country. So a great spot to connect and be like, who's in my local community and how can I be uh, involved in this work? So I just really, and, and listeners, I put all that in the show notes again, so you can find it online as well. But Adam, thank you again for taking time out of your Friday afternoon to talk with me, to talk with our listeners, to share so openly and just to be a part of our grief community. I'm really grateful for your time today. Jana, thank you. This has been an absolute delight and a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. And listeners out there, I say it each and every time, but thank you for making the show mean what it does. If you uh, have an episode that you think might be helpful, please feel free to share it with someone in your life. If you want to connect with me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. 
dougy.org is also our main website where you can find all the past episodes of the podcast, information about our local programming, and all of our free and downloadable resources for people who are grieving from age three all the way up to 93. And I'm also excited to share with you that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.